So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Spirituality Patreon bonus sample. Hello, Conspirituality Podcast Patreons, and welcome to this installment of Listener Stories. You can find me, Julian and Derek, bobbing around on Twitter. You can find us all at Conspirituality Pod on Instagram as well. Now, if you are a Patreon supporter, thanks a million, and we hope that you benefit from all of the hours of premium materials. And then and we want you to know that this week we'll be adding an Ask Me Anything live stream for that first tier. So I'm hosting the first one on the 21st of April at 2 o'clock Eastern time. And there is another tier if you are interested uh, where we post editorial briefs and we host more structured live streams. Uh, last bit of housekeeping, please pre-order our book, which is called Conspirituality, How New Age Conspiracy Theories Became a Public Health Threat, now through the link at the bottom of the show notes for this episode. It's a pretty comprehensive history of this movement, and it features some deep dives into the most egregious influencers and charlatans that we've covered over the past three years. We're pretty proud of the research. Uh, there's 704 endnotes, and you can help our rankings and visibility a lot, or so I'm told, by jumping on the pre-order train. The publication date is June 13th. Now, today my guest is Dr. Jagris Hodson, Associate Professor and Canada Research Chair in Digital Communication for the Public Interest at Royal Roads University in Victoria, British Columbia. Jagris, welcome to Conspirituality Podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, really interesting to speak with you because you are a digital communications expert who has also made like a big leap into studying online health misinformation. And obviously that's gold for the kind of uh, territory that we cover. But our communication started with you sharing parts of a very personal story. So maybe we can start there uh, in the dark days of the pandemic. So I, I think it helps to have a little bit of background, um, uh, more than just the dark days of the pandemic, which obviously looms large. But also um, in the province of Canada that I am in, and actually I think in Canada generally, um, there is uh, some limitations uh, to public health. Uh, a lot of people can't get a family doctor. Right. And in my province, I think almost half of people uh, can't get a family doctor. And so I've been here for almost a decade 
with no family doctor. Wow. Uh, and I mainly managed that uh, the way many of us manage that. Uh, that is, you know, I made sure that I ate really right. I was, you know, very into health and fitness culture. Uh, you know, I did uh, Thai boxing for a while, uh, vegetarian, the whole nine yards, all the things that you're supposed to do uh, to keep yourself well. And, um, you know, in doing all of these things and then, you know, obviously doing all the things they told us to do during the pandemic, avoiding crowds, wearing masks, uh, what have you, uh, I considered myself to be, you know, a sort of peak health condition and not the type of person that would have to worry about, um, you know, cancer, uh, especially at the age of 42. Right. So, uh, yeah, in 2001, right in the middle of the pandemic, um, I started to develop some, you know, sort of strange symptoms but I initially brushed them off because I'm not that person. You know, I was taught, right, by wellness culture, I am not the person who ends up with, with a cancer diagnosis. But eventually the symptoms turned into something I couldn't ignore. And I say eventually, but it was like over a period of a month. It was quite quick and quite aggressive. And so I went to a walk-in clinic uh, and they referred me for um, a diagnostic mammogram. And immediately... Immediately, I went to a biopsy and it came back a stage three, very rare, very aggressive, uh, inflammatory type of breast cancer. Wow. Uh, and, and I was floored. I was just lost. I, you know, I have no doctor and suddenly I'm in the system and um, the system was overloaded at the time as well because, you know, by the middle of covid um, people were just burning out and they were leaving or they were being, you know, reassigned nurses and, and what have you. Healthcare workers themselves, you mean, are burning out and leaving, right? Yeah, that, yeah. that's correct. So, you know, uh, nurses is, is the prime example. Um, but um, my oncologist actually also burnt out and left um, during my treatment. Wow. And nobody told me because there was nobody, I guess, in the system available to send me a, even a letter or, or call me and let me know. Um, but you know, uh, backtracking just a little bit, it also, um, this lack of, of resiliency in the system led to delays in my treatment as well. So, you know, I'm dealing with this very aggressive cancer and yet, um, I had to wait nearly eight weeks, uh, to start treatment and the recommendation, the guideline is you should be starting treatment within like two weeks. So, you know, in the meantime, things are ticking, you know, the, the tumor is growing and I am, you know, sitting in my house with this diagnosis over my head and thinking, what is going on? Um, so, uh, you know, during that time, partially as a result of just feeling so lost and then also partially as a result of uh, because of COVID, there were no social supports available. Um, so there were no um, uh, support groups um, through BC Cancer, uh, British Columbia Cancer, where, where I'm located, um, that would have been available. And my, um, my wife couldn't even join me for appointments. Like she, she wasn't allowed. So, so there's no sort of access to, you know, the, the familial medical advocate that you might want to have in those situations. No, it was very lonely and very overwhelming. Yeah. And uh, so you, you, you go where you can. And uh, as a digital researcher, I am a highly online individual. Uh, and so I, I started searching uh, breast cancer hashtags, um, mainly on, on Instagram. 
Uh, I'm not currently on Facebook. Uh, and I also tried Twitter, but, but Instagram turned out to be the place where it was easiest to find other people under the age of 45. Because that's another thing too, right? Um, a lot of the people around you who you see with cancer, they are decades older than you are. Right. And so you can't connect on things like, what do I do about my career? How do I pay my mortgage? You know, some people uh, have, have childcare responsibilities and, and those sorts of things. And, and it's just not as reflected in somebody, say, over the age of 65 who, who has this condition. But I found people like me on Insta and, and started following them and voraciously, like voraciously looking for um, you know, what, what are people going through? What can I expect from chemo, for example? Um, you know, what, what, is there anybody else with my kind of cancer? What kind of treatment are they getting? What should I be thinking about? What questions should I ask? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and this led me to also some not so great information. Before we get there, uh, I wanted to ask about the sort of feeling state of that delay. Uh, you said that you know, the recommendation is that treatment starts within two weeks and you wound up waiting for eight weeks. And I'm thinking that a lot of this Instagram immersion is happening or beginning to happen during those eight weeks. But at that same time, are you also feeling the urgency of your symptoms increasing? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if this was all in my head, right? Um, you can, you can only know what, what you think you, you sense, but it is happening through a cloud of absolute terror, as, you know, yeah. as you can imagine. So right. I felt like at the beginning of my diagnosis, I could not feel my lymph nodes, uh, you know, in my armpit, the, the neighboring lymph nodes. Um, but before I made it into treatment, I swear they had grown and I could now feel these little like kind of rocks, um, you know, in, in my armpit. Oh. And, and, you know, when I, when I said later to the oncologist, they were noncommittal, like, you know, I, like, could it grow that fast? I mean, I don't, I don't know if, if it was all in my head, <laughs> but, but that it did, it did feel like they were growing. Well, it's not just that it might be in your head, but that there's a feedback loop between trying to research your condition in the absence of care, and then maybe palpating your armpit deeper and deeper day by day until yes, you finally yes. feel something. Yeah. That's, that's so, so difficult. Yeah. And I remember just, you know, Lying on you know the floor of my gym after a workout because the one thing my GP did tell me was you know keep exercising up until you can't because that will help you. So then of course I you know as an over exerciser to begin with I was <laughs> constantly in the gym and I remember lying on the floor and stretching and then yeah just as you say palpating my armpit and just thinking this is this is untenable I I can't like it was my own personal you know nightmare. Okay, so you start to. Um, be led by the algorithm into some alternative health territory. So what's the first thing that comes up? Um, well, uh, you know, lucky for me, I, I had studied COVID-19 misinformation prior to my diagnosis. So I had a little bit um, of a higher sensitivity for like bullshit, really. Right. Uh, and so, uh, you know, a lot of things that that came up like um, you know, subscribe to my plan for, you know, help with, uh, you know, relieving your cancer symptoms or whatever. You know, it was just an automatic block. Um, but the way it came through was a lot more insidious. So, you know, as I am following um, other women who have experienced my uh, or similar diagnoses, they would start posting about things that they were doing. Hmm. And 
it was almost that, that parasocial, you know, I feel like I know them and they're, they're you know, I didn't know them and, and they weren't my friends at the time, although I did make friends later with some of them, but it was that parasocial at the time interaction. You feel like you kind of know them and you're like, oh, that's working for that person. So maybe I'll look into that. And, and for me, the thing was, was fasting. Um, now I have to say fasting, there's limited studies that do show maybe fasting does work for some forms of cancer. Yes. Has it been tested, you know, in large clinical trials on my type of cancer? No. Uh, and in fact, uh, fasting can also be really dangerous, especially if you're not monitored by a medical professional. So maybe fasting itself wasn't so much the problem, but me, you know, jumping into it, right, without supervision and without um, having the proof that, you know, it, it definitely is a good idea for breast cancer. Um, you know, that's not a smart decision and it's, it's very, you know, wellness adjacent, you know, in terms of a lot of the woo stuff that you get. So I was fasting for 36 hours, uh, around my chemo treatments. To give you some credit though, I'm wondering how that particular plan or intervention made sense on some level, perhaps intuitively. Like, what was it about fasting in particular that made you feel that, you know, even in the absence of solid evidence, it made sense? <laughs> yeah, um, so it's, it was a sense of control like I need to do something. Right. I feel really out of control. And like, you know, you, you want to make sure that if you're going through chemo, right, that, that you're um, doing everything you can to make that chemo take. And, and the way it was presented to me um, from, from this person that I, that I followed on Insta, um, they, they said they were fasting because it improves um, the effectiveness of chemo. Hmm. And, and indeed, again, if you look up the, the limited uh, you know, scientific literature on the topic, that seems to be what it suggests. Um, but uh, some of it is, is, it's not sponsored research, <laughs> but it was research done by a company who specializes in fasting. Like they, they make supplements for fasting. Excellent. And, Excellent. Right? That's fantastic. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and looking back now, I'm like, that, that, why did you trust those particular scientific studies? Um, but at the time I was grasping for anything that would allow me to, to feel like I, I could do something. Was there language around the tumor is growing, you should starve the tumor? <laughs> Luckily, um, not in the studies, right? <laughs> right, uh, but yeah. on Instagram. Yeah, yes, yes. There is a lot of language about, and, and it's not, you know, necessarily, they're not focused on sugar now, although I did get a lot of from friends and family, you can't eat sugar, you can't eat sugar. And, and, and no, like, that's not how any of this works. But... <laughs> But it sounds virtuous. Yeah, yeah, it sounds virtuous. Right. Uh, but uh, but yes, yeah, there there is that idea um, yeah, that if you starve the tumor, <laughs> I'm saying air quotes, if you right. starve the tumor, then it takes up more of the chemo. In, right, in, right. Yeah, yeah, that was the idea. Huh. Yeah, and interesting, um, it just occurred to me that, that of course you can't eat sugar. It's almost as if... Um, I, I guess the first thing that came up for me was that you're supposed to enter into a kind of dietary Lent 
in order for the in order for the the chemotherapy to work that you're going to sort of restrict yourself from something that would be naturally sort of you know nurturing or pleasurable or or it might be involved you know in comfort foods and and that's going to that's going to be effective you're you're going to be doing something yeah and and you know that that is a really prominent theme um in in some of this stuff and it's also very dangerous. You know, you wouldn't think, okay, you know, whatever, you're eating a healthy diet, but it's on chemo. There's a lot of times you can't eat at all. Right. So if there is anything you can shove into your body, you know, ice cream, hamburgers, right. whatever, right. you need to eat that thing. Right. Because, um, you know, you, it's, it's very dangerous to lose weight on chemo right. that, you know, the people who lose weight tend to have worse outcomes. And, and this is supported by the literature. And in fact, when I was fasting, at one point, about midpoint in my chemo cycle, I passed out. Oh, right. And that was v- extremely dangerous. Uh, and, and after that, I think it sort of like knocked some sense into me because after that, I, I had a discussion with my wife who was never a fan of the fasting to begin with. Mm. And we decided, you know, for the rest of my chemo cycle, I wasn't going to try this anymore. Now, can I just ask, this might be out of, out of scope or too personal, but in, in your relationship, was that the first sort of um, moment where there was uh, a kind of skepticism that came from your partner or, or, you know, maybe, maybe we should look further into this, or <laughs> I, I know that you're trying to do something, but I don't know, like, uh, or, or was that something that was a theme all the way along? Uh, we were both scared and sad and lost. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, I think she gently, uh, you know, threw out um, the, the, the fasting adventure, um, gently would say, are you sure you, you have to fast that long? You know, or, or things like that. Right. Um, and then I, uh, I would say, no, like, I, I, I have to. I, I just, you know, I, I have to. Uh, and then... And then, you know, uh, they took that as, uh, okay, now I'm just going to let uh, you know, my wife you know, do what, what she needs to do. Um, and, um, but I think there, there was a concern, um, right, almost from the jump, but, but especially the farther we got along. Like, because I, you know, I would start with a 12-hour a, a fast. Right. And then a 24 hour fast wow. and then a 36 hour fast. And, and I think as, you know, as it increased, because longer has to be better, right? Longer has to be more effective. Well, again, in, in the literature that has been sponsored by companies who do this sort of thing, <laughs> uh, it was suggested that, that longer might be better. Sure. Because, well, you'd also be taking more supplements during that time, right? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, you know, it's just, I really feel for the relational thing here because I don't know. It seems to be like, I imagine it is a universal human and familial and domestic impulse that when your partner is sick, that you want to give them food and, (laughs) or to make food for them or to watch them enjoy food. And if that's not happening, um, that might be really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think also, um, you know, I did lose weight. Like, how could you not? Um, right. I probably would have lost a little bit of weight on, on chemo anyway, because I was so nauseous, but, um, of course the fasting didn't help. And so I think you can see, like, you can see the changes in your partner and, right. uh, yeah, that's gotta be hard. Like looking back now at photos of myself during that time, it doesn't even look like me. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So you said that, um, part of what 
going into this information and beginning to adopt some of the practices uh, did for you was that it provided a sense of of control or agency at a time when you feel that everything is out of control. Now, is was that a, a sense of empowerment or agency that you then had to surrender when you were able to get the chemo care that you needed and that you know you were fully committed to that program? Yeah, I think it's sort of the opposite. The reason why I grabbed onto it so tightly was because everything else felt out of control. You right. know, first of all, it felt like I had been fed a lie, right? Like the the lie being, if you do the right things, if you exercise, you eat a good diet, you know, you brush your teeth and floss every day, that that you're not going to get these things. And, right. and now I realize that it's, I mean, a healthy lifestyle is important, but luck also plays a role. Yes. Isn't that the kicker, right? <laughs> yeah. Like you can't commodify luck or uh, transcending luck. You can commodify the self-project, you can commodify personal responsibility, but you really can't sell luck. I mean, you can just in a pure online gambling sense. <laughs> but I mean, I think it would be very insulting for most wellness influencers to have their marketing compared to sort of like, you know, online slot machines, which is kind of, you know, there's not a lot of daylight in there. Oh, agree. And I don't think that healthcare in in North America, at least, is doing itself any favors because to cover over cracks in the system, you get a lot of messaging about healthy lifestyle. I haven't really thought about that, actually, that, that it might be that, um, you know, we have these neoliberal forms of uh, healthcare, uh, always subject to rationing, always subject to what market demands can bear. And, you know, well-meaning public health officials will speak into those gaps, but then probably also provide the kind of institutional legitimization for the wellness industry to take that, you know, torch and run with it mm -hmm. and say, well, actually, self-care is the whole bag. Uh, and you, you know that you know that universal health care here isn't really going to take care of you ultimately, and then it's worse in the states. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I see now, of course, all kinds of messages from you know BC Cancer, from you know Health Canada, etc., about the necessity of um, individual intervention. So, you know, do your self checks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, my tumor didn't even present in a regular way, which I think is part of what allowed me to ignore the weird symptoms for so long. Right. It wasn't a lump. It wasn't any of the things that they normally tell you to look for that you think to look for. And so if I had done self-checks, would I have caught it? I don't know. I, I, I don't, I think there's a limit to what we can do. And without having a regular family doctor who gave me regular physical exams and knew what my normal was and that, you know, I was off baseline, I, I didn't have the individual knowledge, uh, maybe to protect myself the way idealistically they they would have liked me to. Yeah, so, so I think that was the first part where I, I needed to gain back that control. But then also, once you're in the system, right? You're they don't allow you even to specify a good time to have an appointment. You know, they tell you you have to be here on this day, and if you're not, you know, you don't have a spot. And right. the doctor will see you at this time and sit around your phone for a call at this time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you are completely out of control with your schedule. You are completely out of control with your body. You are completely out of control of all these horrible side effects. Right. And so, it, to me, 
it, that was what really resulted in in this need to like claw back whatever control I could. And, and it was through, you know, obsessive online information seeking that I was trying to do it. Just to go back to the public messaging for a moment, uh, when you see now this messaging around self-examination, um, you know, obviously that's not bad advice uh, and that can help sort of, you know, fill the gap between GP appointments or things like that. Or if, if you know, I don't actually know whether it's standard over a certain age that if you had a yearly physical that, that uh, a breast exam would be part of that. But, you know, self-exam should be, you know, decent advice. But I'm just wondering if they should just add another phrase to messages like that, which would be, you know, uh, self-checks are really good and they're not also sufficient. Uh, and you really need to, <laughs> and you really need to uh, make sure that you're in constant, you know, contact with your GP and, you know, you go to all your regular appointments. But I suppose if they injected that additional message, it would kind of like, you know, it, it wouldn't fulfill the purpose of, you know, transitioning the health economy mm -hmm. towards self-responsibility, right? That's correct. Yeah. And it's also not a very snappy message from a marketing standpoint. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Please do this thing, which isn't really sufficient. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty and good. It's pretty yeah. good. But if you Better actually, nothing. yeah, but if, but if you actually have a rare form of incredibly dangerous cancer, it's not going to help you. Yeah, well, and I have two other thoughts about that too, Matthew. So the first being in British Columbia about a decade ago, they actually um, told doctors that doctors were not allowed to bill for uh, you know, regular physicals on healthy people. So, so I, I mean, you know, I, I say if I had had a family doctor, but it's more complex than that because if I had had a family doctor that was allowed right, to, to give annual physicals, and, and to me that's the most ridiculous thing because yeah, you, you have the physical when you're healthy to avoid millions of dollars spent on like chemo treatments because right. you have advanced cancer or heart disease or whatever, right? And then the second thing is I know that in the States, they just changed the regulations and they've told women that if you are under a certain age, you don't even need to do your self-checks anymore, which is like, yeah. it blows my mind and it blows the mind of every other young cancer patient because they say, oh, it gives you too much anxiety. Oh, you know, you can't have that anxiety in your life that that's, you know, that's too much. And if you go for a mammogram, you don't need like that's extra anxiety and you shouldn't do that either. And I, I have just, I would be dead. I would be dead. Oh man, that's so upside down because on one hand they're saying, they're saying, don't make yourself anxious by doing the sort of this activity, which we've thrown to you as a bone, uh, to make up for the gap in care. Uh, because it will cause you anxiety, but then also you're responsible for all of your other health markers, and that's going to be empowering. That's not going to be anxious to tell you to eat exactly what you should be eating and avoid all sugar and exercise your ass yeah. off, right? Yeah. yeah, weird. Yeah, and so it's no wonder that the, the grifters, um, you know, there's there's a fertile ground <laughs> for for them to come in and say, you know, here since you have to take care of yourself and and you don't have a lot of mechanisms, you know, for, uh, to assist you. And, uh, you know, we're going to give you this supplement. Okay, so we're going to get to that because that's now your research basis. But because, you know, we focus so much on spiritual promises in this field, in this landscape, um, was there anything in that category in the 
influencer sphere that you were attracted to? Was there anything sort of existentially fulfilling or or psychologically uplifting about the influencers that you were following that that made the the practices or the advice seem a little bit more attractive? Yeah, thank you. I I think that's um, a really important part of the puzzle. Um, I, I remember actually anecdotally, uh, one of my friends uh, told me while I was in the middle of chemo that um, you know they didn't want to tell me about their problems because I was supposed to maintain positive thinking so that the chemo would work better. And uh, and you know I was so mad, but because you missed out on their problems, you missed out on being able to empathize, right? Well, I don't, you know, you, you don't want to be just cancer girl, right? right? And, and, you know, and, and you want to be able to be a whole person and a whole friend and like, yeah, be part of their life. Yeah. But also this idea, right, that that positive thinking will somehow help my chemo. I, I, anyway, uh, it works for some people. But that all that being said, you know, you asked me if there was something else that attracted to me to some of this content. And you know what? And we'll get to this because it's also a big part of my recent research I gravitated towards content that wasn't too scary, wasn't too dire, right? Like I wanted to see people who were still making it to the gym in the middle of chemo. Wow, I wanted to see right. people who, you know, even though I rejected that that positive thinking from my friend, I was kind of actually looking for it. I, I needed to see people that were doing well. 